Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This week in the CLE, the podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer has its biggest audience ever. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. It's good to see so many people checking in with us every day. I'm Chris Quinn, the editor at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, and I'm here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Jane Cahoon. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. You sound so overjoyed. It's really Wednesday because <laughs> it's a short week and it's July 4th week. And so anyway, and happy get- Wednesday. And then happy Wednesday. Let's get to the news. Did a Black Lives Matter protest in Cleveland on May 30th cause a coronavirus surge? This is interesting. The timing would seem to say it does. But Chris Warnowski, there's caveats to this. What are they? Right. So the short answer is maybe. To give a little background here, the city hit uh, daily records twice since Thursday for positive coronavirus tests. And Public Health Director Merle Gordon said Monday that the current spike was uh, for cases that probably contracted on June 3rd and 4th, right about the same time that the city lifted its daytime travel restrictions in downtown in Ohio City. And those restrictions were put in place, if you remember, uh, right after a protest that happened May 30th in downtown Cleveland that was uh, organized by Black Lives Matter Cleveland. But the the issue here is is really that what the city was finding is that in their discussions with people uh, about where they went um they're, they're this the city is attributing this more to traveling and people going out to nightclubs and bars often without masks so so to say it's di- like the protest had a direct impact on this is i i don't want to say not accurate but it 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 it's I, I think it would be difficult to pin it directly on that because other things have reopened and you're, you're seeing a lot of, of people going out without masks and, and, and some, you know, less than responsible responses to things reopening. And the, the reason you know that is because the city is doing some contact tracing. So if somebody gets infected, test positive, they're, they're talking to them and asking. And what they're saying is, yeah, I, I wasn't at the protest. I was at the beach or right. I went to a bar without a mask. And so even though the timing, you know, there were a lot of predictions that, oh, look at all those people got together, although most of them were masked. But all yeah. those people got together. We're going to see a surge. We are seeing a surge, but it, it's more coincidental than it is uh, causation. Right. OK, so, yeah. And, and, you know, we had people down there and at this event and and they were there were people handing out masks. There were you know, there was a lot of, you know, as much distancing as you can when can do when there's a couple thousand people down there. But for the most part, I mean, there was a pretty heavy saturation of people wearing masks. And it was impressive. I mean, mm-hmm. I when I was watching Hannah Drown's Facebook Live, I was stunned that everybody seemed to be wearing masks. And it was it was heartening to see because we keep hearing People elsewhere, Laura Johnston's in Indiana this week. She sent me a note saying no one in Indiana is wearing a mask. Where mm-hmm. in Cleveland on the, during the protests, they were wearing masks. Anyway, we'll have to see if that surge continues and what Cleveland might do about it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Does Monday's surprise U.S. Supreme Court ruling on abortion have ramifications for Ohio? Jane Cahoon, I thought this might be the case that starts to turn the Supreme Court's head on abortion. I thought this might be the beginning of the end of abortion rights in America, but it was a 5-4 decision that, that did not do that. And it does appear it could have an effect on Ohio. Can you explain what the ruling was and what it means for Ohio? Sure. This was a five to four ruling with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the the liberal wing of the court. And it struck down a law in Louisiana that required people performing abortions to have admitting privileges at hospitals. And the reason we say it could have implications in Ohio is because Ohio has a similar law, not identical that requires transfer agreements with with hospitals, requires abortion clinics to have transfer agreements, which they are also arguing the clinics in Ohio that this is an undue burden. And in fact, the court majority, the Supreme Court majority found that this was an undue burden on uh, the right to an abortion. Is uh, the Ohio's law in the courts now? Yes, it's being challenged in a federal court. So you have to believe that they are going to bring up this case in, in seeking to, to throw that law out. What was fascinating about this is that there was a previous ruling almost identical out of, I think it was Texas, Texas in which right. there was a 5-4 majority that said that this is an undue burden. And Roberts dissented in that ruling. Right. But this time he was in the majority saying, look, we got to go with precedent. You have to treat like cases alike. And he wasn't willing to reverse the precedent, which is which is impressive. You know, that's what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. It's supposed to stand on precedent precedent. But you've got some activist conservatives on there now that are looking to. To, looking for that abortion case, they can they can turn it on its head. So this was just a premise. Yeah, I think that's why we shouldn't maybe make too much out of this ruling that the court is is somehow swinging to you know they're, that they're going to uphold all you know or they're going to throw out all abortion restrictions. It because the chief justice made it clear that he you know he uh, didn't agree with that last case, but it was strictly on the basis of precedent, because this law was almost word for word identical to the Texas law. Yeah, I know. But uh, but a lot of people thought this would be the moment when it starts to turn and it and it did not. So it was it'll, it I, I'm sure that this will immediately be added to in that Ohio case you mentioned. And and we'll have to see if that rises to the Ohio Supreme Court or not. This is, I just want to say something really quick. This is Chris Warnowski. One of the things about John Roberts that I think a lot of people who don't pay attention to the court should know is, is that he is, he is a stickler for doing it right. So, you know, as you touched on in this, he basically said, like, look, we set the precedent. He doesn't agree with that precedent, but he has to follow that precedent. I think what what he's doing is basically saying, don't bring me sloppy work. And, you know, that, you know, and, and he left, you know, there's a there's an opening here for them to continue for the anti-abortion people to continue this fight. And, and I think we'll see it. It's just, you know, he wants it done right. You know, he wants the cases presented in the right way. And, and you know, he, he's basically saying that this was sloppy work and don't bring it to me. OK, it's this week in the CLE. 
What does the former Cuyahoga County Budget Director say is the actual reason she was fired in her lawsuit filed this week in federal court? You know, we haven't talked a lot about Cuyahoga County government the last few months on this podcast because we've been so busy with the coronavirus. We've had a few, but there were a lot of issues going on in county government before the coronavirus hit. This was one of them. Chris Ranowski, what's the lawsuit about? So Maggie Keenan, who, as you mentioned, is the former Cuyahoga County budget director, she said that in a lawsuit that she filed over the weekend, that she was the victim of retaliation because she was a whistleblower, repeatedly raising concerns about the safety at the jail, discrimination in the workplace, and criminal misconduct by a top administrator. The lawsuit names Executive Armin Budish, his chief of staff, Bill Mason, and former uh, Human Resources Director Doug Dykes, all those defendants. And Maggie worked there from 2006 to 2013, and she was rehired as the budget director in 2015. And she says in her lawsuit that she raised a lot of concerns about the medical issues, uh, the issues with the medical staff at the jail and, you know, some other things that were going on. You know, if you remember that in 2018 and into 2019, nine people died in that jail as a result of, you know, suicide and and drug overdoses. So, you know, one of the key issues was the lack of nurses. I mean, this was something that had come up and was debated And there is a paper trail backing up that she noted there was a nursing shortage problem in the jail. Uh, She's she's going, I mean, the whole thing is based, I was the whistleblower and I was retaliated against because I was pointing out problems. That's the basic argument she's making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, the idea is that she, she is, she's claiming that I raised concerns and I was fired because I raised those concerns. And, and, and oh, go ahead. And one of the people that's named Douglas Dykes, the former HR director, is charged with a crime himself in uh, in court with um, with regard to all the county investigations. Uh, and she's she's saying that he did wrong, that he what was it sexual? Uh, it wasn't discrimination, but he made comments that were inappropriate. Is that what the argument is with him? Correct. Or was that, or was that Mills? That's the jail director that was. It's- Look, it's, it's hard to keep some of these things straight. I totally get it. Um, Dykes, if I recall, I you know I can't recall off the top of my head what he what he has been accused of. But there's, I mean, there's a whole host of 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 people that are accused of malfeasance. You know, you have the well, Dykes is charged you, with theft because yeah. he gave somebody a bonus right. okay, that he wasn't yeah, supposed that, that to give him, thing. which is kind of wacky. But she's saying that he was part of the retaliation against her. He's the one that ended up. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking her out of the building. Right. Um, so, so so look, this is an interesting case to see where this one goes. The county, of course, uh, as it always does with the lawsuit, says they have to look at the lawsuit before they can respond. And because it's a lawsuit, they're lo- unlikely to say anything. So we really don't have what their their claim is. But we will follow this to see if it gets settled or if it actually goes to trial. Could be a fun trial to cover. <laughs> well, they'll, you know, they'll file their answer to this lawsuit at some point. And so it will, you know, we'll get their denials and at least some minor explanations for, you know, some of the allegations that she raised in the suit. So, Well, they'll have to say if mm-hmm. she was fired for cause, what the specific causation was, which I don't think they did in detail back then. I think they were were pretty um, silent on that. So we'll see. It's uh, It'll be an interesting case. I kind of hope it goes to trial because it would give us a, 
bigger window into just how county government operates. It's been very dysfunctional. It's this right. week in the CLE. Do we finally have a date in Ohio where people can visit relatives in nursing homes? This has been one of the most heartbreaking effects of the coronavirus pandemic. People have been unable to visit their elderly relatives in nursing homes. Those elderly relatives count on those visits to keep them going. And so there's reports that their mental states have deteriorated. Jane Cahoon, Mike DeWine is finally going to let people see them. What's the deal? Well, yes, they're going to allow outdoor visits with residents of nursing homes beginning on July 20th. And it's interesting that this is happening just as Ohio is seeing more coronavirus cases. But the governor, Governor DeWine, explained that I think this he, he called it just one of the toughest decisions he had to make. He said that the, the situation, as you said, with people just deteriorating mentally and because their relatives can't see them, I, I think that just weighed so heavily on him. And he just decided finally that that he had to do this. You know, I do wonder why it took so long. Outdoor visits with masks, with temperature checks. You know, it seems like we could have gotten to this a long while ago. Was it just because so many people in nursing homes have died? It's what, 70% of all the deaths yeah, in Ohio. He was just scared to let people do anything that might increase that rate of death. I think that's what was holding him back. I mean, it's really, it's overwhelming the the number of deaths attributed to nursing homes. So I think he was just really, really reluctant uh, because he wanted to protect the most vulnerable. But he said that, you know, the measures, the restrictions are, are meant to protect vulnerable people, but it also means protecting those things that add value to life. And so that that's where he finally came down on this. I've got to say on all the restrictions that have been put in place and then some removed on the coronavirus, this one seemed to violate the, the sense of American freedom more than any other, that that you were unable to visit your mom or your grandmother or your great aunt I mean, it just, it, that's something that you, you feel like is a natural right. I'm allowed to go talk right. to my mom. I'm allowed right. to do this. And for three months now, people have been unable to do that. And it's, it's just. And it, the freedom of the residents too, you know, they're essentially locked up. And Right. They were you know, basically yeah. turned into prisoners of the nursing homes. And I, I, it feels like we should have done a better job as a society to take care of them. You know, it just, it, 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 this does not seem like the answer. Um, and maybe what we ought to do is advocate for the next time coming up with a much better system for this. I mean, one, you know, the coronavirus spread in nursing homes really quickly and killed a lot of people. We should have been on guard against that. And two, we shouldn't, we shouldn't stop people from having visits with their loved ones, right? I mean, right. Chris Ranaski, you know, we've, we've done a bunch of stories on how it's spread in nursing homes. Doesn't this kind of violate your fundamental sense of fair play? I think so. I mean, there's the public good case to be made that, you know, sending a bunch of visitors into nursing homes where the death rate was so high and, and potentially exposing them to it. But, you know, it, it's, it's we haven't really gotten to the bottom of whether the death rates are are just the the you know just the result of the virus you know there's you know there there's a lot of issues in how a lot of nursing homes are operated 
you know, a lot of them are shoestring budgets designed to maximize the amount of money they make. And, and, you know, so I think history will sort of show a, a clearer picture of, of exactly what went wrong in nursing homes and, you know, in other congregate places like jails and prisons. So, you know, and I can say as somebody who, who you know, my grandmother was in a nursing home last year and, 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 and passed away in a nursing home before all this happened. And, and I can say that there were a lot of, you have to watch them, you know, you have to be very vigilant with the people that run those homes because they, you know, they skimp, they, you know, they cut corners. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen that might be a variable in why we saw such high death rates at these homes. I, I just, I, you know, my mom isn't in a nursing home, so I get to see her and we go over and visit, wear masks and sit in the backyard with social distance. But, but if she were in a nursing home, I think I'd be furious that I was unable to see her for the last three months. I mean, I think that the, the anger I would have about that toward the government would be overwhelming. And it has led to all sorts of petition drives. Um, I, I guess I get back to what I said. There's got to be a better way. And, and really, the conversations on that should start taking place now before well, the next Chris, pandemic. I, I think they do have a better handle on things now. For instance, they're doing way more testing and pinpointing this and keeping out those staff people who used to float in and out and were spreading it. I, I think they just generally got a better handle on that. So perhaps we can hope that, you know, even if the cases do really start to spike, that they will be able to continue these visits. And if we get a vaccine, even if you have to take it twice a year, maybe that'll help too. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine extend most of his coronavirus health orders by just one week? Jane Cahoon, he told us not to read anything into that. What should should we read into that? (laughs) Well, we should read into that, that on Thursday he's going to make some type, various announcements about, about these things. And we don't know really what he's going to do, but these orders were expiring Tomorrow. tomorrow, yeah, yeah, July first, and we're so, talking about the the bars and restaurants, how they the reopen the gyms, or- the salons, the barbers, the campgrounds, um, the schools, and you know all these various rules that he's put in place. So I think he just needed to do this to to make sure they were still in force while they finish getting together whatever, as Dewine called it, holistic plan they now come up with. Are they gonna, you know? reimpose any restrictions i don't know about that but well i mean there's not a whole lot you can do right i mean so he could he's he's kind of hinted that he might do it county by county so he could order people to wear masks in in hard-hit counties the problem is there's no way to enforce that there's not like a mask police force he could close bars i mean that's what you're seeing in a lot of states now because bars are uh, clear incubators of the surge we're seeing in 20 and 30 somethings. But again, that's a big step and you have to police it. And will it work? Would people who want to go and hang with their friends, just get a bunch of beer and go hang out in the backyard. I, he clearly wants to do something. It's starting to get out of control, but it doesn't seem like he has a whole lot of options, right? Yeah, that's how it seems to me. And let's not forget too, he, he keeps promising he's going to have something on the schools and, now he says that's going to come Thursday too, I believe. So, 
yeah. It's amazing how much the school <laughs> argument has evolved in the last two months. It seems like the weight now is on go back. The pediatricians all came out yesterday and said, send uh-huh. them back to school. This is bad for their mental health. Parents <laughs> let their kids back. <laughs> Please to take them back. <laughs> We've clearly heard from Laura Johnson on that. For whose mental health? That's the <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, it'd be interesting. And he's also said repeatedly, "I'm not going to surprise anybody here. He's going to leave this up to school districts, which have done a lot of polls on parents and teachers." So yeah, well, Thursday's briefing could be interesting for a whole lot of reasons. And of course, the numbers keep going up. And Tuesday is a day where we see seem to see some spikes. So we'll have to see what we see at 2 o'clock. It's this week in the CLE. Has the surge in coronavirus cases persuaded Cedar Point operators to postpone their planned July 9th reopening? Chris Ranowski, simple answer. No, they are ready. <laughs> <laughs> they are eager to open. So uh, Cedar Point has officially launched an online reservation system for pass holders to schedule their entrance to the park on the first two days. Starting July 11th, anyone with a reservation can get in. So, But they're cutting their capacity a huge amount, right? Yeah, right. So the park is limiting its capacity to like 12,000 people in the first few weeks that it's open. Uh, normally, and normally it can it's happen. like 50,000 to 55,000 people can get in. So there's going to be a significant, I mean, it might actually be a more enjoyable user experience despite, <laughs> despite the what fact about that, masks do you have to wear a mask yeah so there is uh there is a you're going to be required to fill out a health questionnaire before you get in you're going to be required to wear face masks while you're inside the park you're going to have to get a temperature scan upon entry so you know if you want to ride the rides you're going to have to make some sacrifices so but the good news is, is you'll be able to eat all the bad for you fried food you want and, <laughs> and, and, you know, do all the things. And there might be shorter lines. So, you know, if this some, is something you've been itching to do, you can do it now. <laughs> and reading between the lines, it sounds like they intend to increase that capacity in a hurry. That once they get a feel for how it's going, they're going to try and let more people in. They didn't say it that way exactly, but that's what it sounded like, right? Yeah. And, you know, they're like every other business, I think, that's going to do a, they're going to dip their toe in the pool before they jump in all the way. But they're going to want to jump in all the way as soon as they can, because, you know, they're in the business of making money and they need people to make money. So, you know, I mean, again, as we've talked about before, there, you know, there could be some some rolling back of, of some of this stuff. But, you know, there really hasn't been any indication that businesses are going to be required to do anything at this point. So as of today, you know, this, this plan is, is moving forward, but we'll see what happens after the governor's Thursday briefing. And if anything changes that, that might throw a wrench into these plans. Be interesting to see if people on those roller coasters that go at the high speeds, if all of a sudden masks start flying off their faces and (laughs) bouncing around. It's this week in the CLE. With all the discussions about the quality of police and defunding the police, do we know how much training Ohio police officers get before they are given their badges and guns? Jane Cahoon, Jeremy Pelzer at our State House Bureau took a look at this. What did he find? Yeah, he decided to to get a hold of all those handouts and worksheets and curriculum lists for to to see what every prospective officer has to accomplish. They have to take a a basic training course that consists of at least 737 
hours of instruction from one of Ohio's 69 state-approved basic training academies. And that includes training on things like use of force, overcoming bias, and crowd control. And then to graduate, they have to pass a series of physical fitness tests, um, a written exam, and then skill assessments, including firing weapons. It's not... It's not a long training period, though, right? I mean, so we count on police to deal with mental health crises, but the total amount of time they're in training is a few months, whereas a mental health, a licensed mental health professional goes to college and gets a, a degree, usually an advanced degree. It's, it's an interesting comparison when you think that these are the first responders for people who are in serious mental health crisis. Yeah, the... Um, the- the human relations part of the uh, the instruction is like eighty four hours. So, yeah, I mean, and that's, that ranges that's... from like the handling domestic violence cases to even things like interacting with the with the media, as well as you know mental health stuff. That's one of the reasons people are arguing to kind of review how we attack policing and maybe separate out the mental health part and hire a team of mental health professionals that are your first responders. A lot of pushback from the mayor in Cleveland about that, but it's a conversation taking place elsewhere. So it was, it was a useful story uh, that Jeremy did to show exactly how much training police get. And it's not a lot. And, it, you know, when you think about the responsibility we place into their hands, it's uh, and then you compare that to, other professions. It's a fairly short period of training. It's this week in the CLE. Okay, Chris, Laura. No, Chris. <laughs> Chris, Jane, thanks I'm very Jane. much. Yeah, I know. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This week in the CLE will return on Wednesday. Wednesday.